The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. We are, as the children of God, homesick for a place that we've never been. <laughs> we, we long for heaven, even though we've never been there, but that is our home. You know, wherever Jesus is, is home for us, and we long to be where Jesus is. We're longing for home, and we're almost there, and uh, we're grateful. And um, uh, even as we think about suffering and affliction and even death, uh, for the believer, it's just a doorway, Right? You know, it's just the passage into our eternal rest. As even Daniel was reminded, go your way, go to the end, and you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. So we're longing for a place that we've never been, uh, but we already know who's there, and that's our true home. Our citizenship is in heaven. Well, if you take your Bibles and open up to the book of Daniel, uh, last week we wrapped up the book of Daniel, but I warned you that we'd be back here for an overview, and uh, we'll probably come back to Daniel for back to the basics message on the end times, and uh, hopefully we can do that message on the end times before the end times come. So uh, we're looking forward to having that opportunity to go back to Daniel and learn all that Daniel has taught us about uh, the end. But this book has been so helpful, so instructive, so encouraging. Uh, Daniel has been an incredible journey for us to, to walk through this, uh, some 32 messages in the book of, of Daniel. And I've been surprised at just how practical the book of, of Daniel is. With, with all of the, the prophecies and all that we work through with history, this book is so helpful, so practical. I, I assume that for the first half of the book, you know, chapters 1 through 6, I didn't know how much we'd yield from 7 through 12. There's just so much that's in the book of Daniel for our blessing and benefit. And uh, this week, we're going to do a bit of a flyover for the book of, of Daniel, and uh, we'll survey some of where we've been and hopefully tie up some loose ends that you still might have in your thinking regarding the book of Daniel. So, well, we'll start, we'll be all over the book, but uh, just to start us off, we're in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 17, uh, which is really the theme verse of the entire book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4 and verse 17. It says, this sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful uh, to be looking to your word once again. Father, we pray that you would allow these truths to sink deep in our hearts. We're grateful for all that you've taught us already. And uh, Father, we look even today uh, to just mine more truths from your word. Now, Father, I pray that you would speak to us and that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people in Jesus' name, I praise you and give you thanks. Amen. The theme of the book of Daniel is that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind. And if you're looking for the key verse, it's right there in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 17. That's the, the key statement for the book. Uh, it's repeated at least three more times. If you look in chapter 4 and verse, drop down to verse 25 um, at the end of uh, 
of that verse, it says, the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind. Uh, actually, uh, verse 25, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. If you look down to verse 32, at the end of the verse, again, it says that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whomever he wishes. If you drop down to chapter 5 and verse 2, at the end of uh, the, the verse, chapter 5, it also speaks about this uh, same thing in, uh, in chapter 5, actually 21, chapter 5 and verse 21, where it says again that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. And that, that's an idea that's repeated over and over and over again throughout the book of, of Daniel, that God is the most high and he rules over the realm of mankind and he sets over it who he wants. That same idea is repeated over in uh, chapter 2 and verse 21, uh, where it says it is he who changes the times, the epics. He removes kings and he establishes kings. In chapter 4 and verse 35, it says that all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? God, God is not answering to anybody. No, nobody's calling God into the, to the principal's office and saying, hey, can you explain what you've done down here? God is the one who rules over everyone. And throughout the book of Daniel, God is the one who raises people up, sets them down, takes them down, takes them out. He's demonstrating his rule over all things. 91 times in the book of Daniel, there's some explicit mention of God raising someone up or taking someone out. God is said to raise up, to give over, to reestablish, to set over, to magnify, to prosper, to raise again, to bestow, to set up, to grant, to lift up, to make king, to cause to rule. But he's also said to put to an end, to remove, to take away, to crush, to destroy, to annihilate, to completely destroy, to depose, to cause to fall, to hurl, to trample, to shatter, to break, to slay. God does it all. And I've said it before that the world's rulers are merely the chess pieces that God is moving around the board of the earth. And I love how Jesus responded to Pilate when he stood before him as if, uh, you know, Pilate was, you know, acting as if he was really in charge of things. And uh, Pilate says, you don't, don't speak to me? Do, do you know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify? I mean, imagine this. You're talking to God and you're saying, don't you recognize that I have authority here? And Jesus answered, you'd have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Do you know who you're talking to here? I want to remind me about your authority. Who's the authority that's above? You're not in charge. Psalm 115 and verse 3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. You're not in charge. God is the God of, of heaven, which reminds us that no matter how high we get, we're always beneath him because we're always beneath heaven. 14 times in Daniel, God is referred to as the most high, the highest one. Nobody's higher than God. He's referred to as the God of gods or the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. The word dominion shows up 15 times in the book. The word kingdom shows up 43 times in the book. 43 times kingdom is mentioned. The kingdom of God, the dominion of God, the rule of God explicitly mentioned over and over and over again. Daniel 4 and verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. The invisible hand of God is at work behind the scenes, moving the pieces across the board. And even as evil as the kings may get, 
God is the one who raises them up and he topples them over. It doesn't matter what they do. They're never outside of his control. Do do you recognize that? No matter what the rulers of the world are doing right now, no matter what you're reading in the news right now, there's nobody who gets outside of the control of God. God is in control of absolutely everything. And he'll raise up even evil rulers to demonstrate his power. God raised up Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Alexander the Great, Antiochus Epiphanes, even the Antichrist. God will raise him up to take him out by his own sovereign plan. He is sovereign over all. And if you're reading your Bible correctly, you'll even have to admit that God even has a plan for the kingdom of Satan. Martin Luther once said that even the devil is God's devil. Even the devil can't escape the control of God. God puts Satan on a leash and only allows him to go so far before he reins him back in. God is in control. He's holding the leash. Daniel 7.25 speaks about the lawless one who will come in the future. And it says that the reign of the earth will be given into his hand. Given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. He's got him on the leash. He only goes so far. Given into his hands by who? By the one who rules over the realms of mankind and bestows upon it whomever he pleases, the most high God. He's in charge. God's the one who sets the boundaries for Satan in the book of of Job. You know, Satan came to Job. Satan came to the Lord first to ask permission to come to Job. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. God set the boundaries for Satan. You can go this far and no further. But God God has to grant permission. Satan doesn't just do whatever he wants to do. He doesn't have the the opportunity to just get involved in your life and, you know, mess with things in your life, rearrange stuff. He doesn't have the permission to do that unless God grants it to him. So so we trust in a sovereign God who's over everything, over absolutely everything. And there's coming a time when Satan and his kingdom will be totally removed from the earth, when he will be put out of bounds completely, where he can no longer get in. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44 said, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all of these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. There's coming a time when God will put them out of bounds, and only his kingdom will endure. Fantastic to think about. And that's the day that we're all longing for, right? (laughs) Longing for that day. So much in this book. That's the theme. Let's talk about the structure. One of the easiest ways to divide up the book of uh, Daniel is by the kind of literature that's present in the book. There's personal history, prophetic history. Uh, Chapters 1 through 6 speaks about the personal history of Daniel. It's a narrative. Chapters 7 through 12, prophetic history, and we learn about the prophecy there. Uh, So it's easy to divide up the book that way uh, by the literature, uh, literarily, not literally, literarily, (laughs) the kind of literature, you know, we take all the scripture literally, but but literarily, you know, just the kind of literature that's there. Uh, But that's not all that we see in the book of Daniel. Uh, We can also divide it up by the language that's used linguistically. You may have heard that the Bible uh, has been written in three languages, right? Hebrew, Greek, and what? Aramaic. And what we find in Daniel chapter 2 to 7 is the Aramaic section of the book of of Daniel. 
Uh, so there are certain portions of our Bible that are in Aramaic. It was like a trade language of the Near East. And uh, that's what Daniel is, is written in, in uh, at least chapters 2 through 7. And when you examine that section of the book of, of Daniel, the Aramaic section, there's definite parallelism within that section. It's called a, a chiasm or chiastic structure. Uh, it comes from the, the Greek word uh, key, which looks like an X, you know, so it starts at the top goes in towards the middle, and then widens out again, and both sides parallel each other. And as you look at the, the middle section of the book of Daniel from chapters 2 through 7, it doesn't go in a, a line like A, B, C, D, E. It goes A, B, C, C, B, A, because there's parts that parallel one another. They're, they're mirroring each other. So, for example, in chapters 2 and 7, they're like bookends. In chapter 2, if you remember, there were four pieces of a great statue that represented the kingdoms of the earth. In chapter 7, there are four beasts which represent the kingdoms of the earth. In chapter 3, chapter 3 and 6, they belong together. In chapter 3, you have Daniel's Hebrew friends that defy the king. In chapter 6, you have Daniel who defies the king. And both of them are placed into a life-threatening situation and escape. So chapters 3 and 6, they belong together. They mirror each other. And then chapters 4 and 5 also belong together. So you see how we're working out, going in, working back out again. Chapter 4 and 5, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision and is judged. And then in chapter 5, King Belshazzar has a vision and is judged. So, so you have these parallels within the book. So uh, we recognize that there's a, a structure. And then following this kind of section in the middle, uh, there's these, uh, after that, there's these four visions uh, that Daniel has uh, after you get through, you know, chapter 7. You know, chapter 7 is kind of like the bridge, kind of belongs to both sections. But in uh, chapter 7, you start out with this vision that Daniel has, and then there's four visions, you know, four visions of Daniel. So it's a, a really uh, uh, great way to divide up the book, to think through all the content of the, the book. And what I want to do with the time that I have left is to walk through the structure of the book of Daniel in one shot. So this is a one-shot overview of the entire book. So if you've missed all 32 messages, if you get this one, you still have to go back and listen to all 32 messages. But uh, we're going to start at the middle of the book and kind of work our way out, okay? So number one, we're walking through the, the structure of the book of Daniel following that structure, okay? That chiastic structure. Number one, God removes and establishes kings, even the most wicked, to demonstrate his own power. God establishes, he removes and establishes kings, even the most wicked, to demonstrate his power. What we find in chapter 4 is absolutely shocking when you kind of go to that middle section of the book. Chapter 4, absolutely shocking. Because if you were to read in chapter 4, it seems out of place because the person who's speaking doesn't seem like he should actually be giving this kind of testimony. The opening of Daniel chapter 4 is nothing less than shocking. If I were to substitute David's name for Nebuchadnezzar's name, you might have assumed that, you know, I'm just reading a psalm. Look at uh, chapter 4 of Daniel. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs, the wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion from generation to generation. You might have easily thought that, you know, hey, that, that could belong in the mouth of, of David. But this is Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan, Gentile, idol-worshiping king. 
In chapter 1 of Daniel, he's the most feared enemy of the Jewish people. In chapter 2, he surrounded himself by magicians, sorcerers, conjurers, those who speak to the dead to get advice. And he's threatening death to anybody who can't reveal and interpret his dreams. And then in chapter 3, he erects an idol of himself and demands worship. This is the kind of king who's now saying, I want to tell you what the Most High God has done for me. You know, it's like he shows up in the congregation and wants to give a testimony. It's like, Pastor, did you, did you give him permission to get up here on the mic? Like, do you know who this guy is? This is, this is the idol worshiper. This is the guy who demanded worship of himself. Like, who let this guy in? You know, and then he kind of stands behind the mic, you know, praise the Lord, saints. You know, just, just want to let you know what the Lord has done for me. Come, on, come a mighty long way, saints. You know, I just want to let you know what he's done for me. This, this is what's going on here. And you could easily see how, like, uh, you know, remember when uh, Ananias was told to go, to go to Saul of Tarsus, and he's like, Lord, um, I've heard about this man. <laughs> like, are you sure we're talking about the same one here? And that's the same way that this original audience would have heard from Nebuchadnezzar. Are, are we sure that this is the right guy here? But what we find in this chapter is a marvelous picture of God raising up even the most wicked of kings for his own glorious purposes. And it's an encouragement to us to know how far God will go to extend his grace even to the worst of men. Look at chapter 4 and verse 13. It says, I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. And behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. The tree which was Nebuchadnezzar was about to come crashing down. He was no longer going to hold his position, his power. He wouldn't even be half the man that he was before. He'd be a stump of a man that he was before. Look at verse 15. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground. So there's mercy here. But with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him share with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The, the, the king of kings was about to become the king of beasts. Live like an animal. Live how they live. Eat what they eat. Given grass to eat. Drenched with the dew of, of heaven. And why would the king of Babylon suffer in this way? Look at verse 17. The sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind. Here we are, back to our key verse, right? God would literally bring him to his knees in order to cause him to look up. And God can do the same thing with us if he chooses, right? Bring us to our knees in order that we might look up to heaven. But my point here is that God removes and establishes kings. In Nebuchadnezzar's case, it ended well. Because he would recognize that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind. But it didn't end in the same way for his grandson, Belshazzar, who knew all of this and still defied the Lord of glory. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. He thought it was a great idea to take God's vessels and use them as party favors. Everybody's having a good time. Isn't this great, guys? Everybody's invited to the party, and then the unexpected guest shows up. God shows up. 
What would it be like if God crashed your party? Your next gathering, unexpected, unannounced, uninvited. (laughs) What would it look like if that were to happen? What would he find you engaged in? What condition would you be found in? And what would be left written on your wall after he's done? Chapter 4 ended with the words, He is able to humble those who walk in pride. And those words should have been etched on the mind of every would-be ruler. He's able to humble you if you walk in pride. Don't be proud. Don't be a proud ruler. Remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, that should have been passed down from generation to generation. Wouldn't you think so? You know, like when they tucked the princes of Babylon in at night, you know, gave them a little kiss on the forehead. Now, don't forget Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) Don't forget what happened to him. You could wake up a beast tomorrow, you know. Just don't forget. But here it is. King Nebuchadnezzar spent seven years mowing the grass with his teeth, and his grandson didn't learn anything from it. You think you're going to get away? Two kinds of sins that David speaks about in Psalm 19. He speaks about the the hidden sins, you know, the sins that we don't know about, the sins that we kind of do unintentionally, you know, hard hard to detect. You know, maybe sins of attitude or the mind, you know, harder to detect when we're in sin. Psalm 19, verse 12 says, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. You know, forgive me, because I know there's times that I've sinned. Even today, I've probably sinned and didn't even know it. Lord, forgive me. Forgive my wrong attitudes. Forgive my wrong thoughts. But then there's another kind of sin that we commit. Psalm 19, 13 says, Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. You know what that is? Those are the sins that we know they're wrong, and we do it anyway. Kind of high-handed defiance against God. I know it's wrong, and I'm going anyway. I don't care what you got to say. David says, keep me back from that. (laughs) Like, Lord, please don't allow me to get there. Don't allow me to to, to raise this high-handed fist at you, this raised fist against heaven. Don't let them rule over me. Those kinds of sins have a way of controlling you. you. You give yourself over to a sin, and you know it's a sin, and then you don't care that it's a sin, and you don't care about the consequences, those sins will control your life. It's like when God came to Cain and he says, it's crouching at the door, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. You know this is wrong. I know what you have in your heart. You know it's wrong. Don't go there because this will take you out. And it's exactly what happened, right? I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong. But I'm going to do it anyway. I don't care what God has to say. God, can you imagine God being your counselor? God giving you direct advice, trying to help you out. Hey, there's a detour here. Don't go down this way. I'm telling you, it's not going to end well. And then you ignore him? Exactly what happened in Belshazzar's life. He, He knew he was wrong. He knew he was wrong. Chapter Five and verse four, they drank the wine, praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. I mean, this is like a, a scene from a horror film, right? Uh, a bodiless hand scratching in the plaster above you. I mean, it doesn't even say that he had a, you know, like a pen or something. It's like scratch, like literally it just says the hand did the writing. So it's like the fingers just etching into the wall above you. Like that's what you, you hear the sound. You look up and the plaster's coming down on top of you. And a hand just floating in the air writing out your death sentence. That's what happened here. 
Fingers did the writing. Just imagine the king arrogantly looking over the, the party, a few chips of plaster fall on his head, and, and now he's out of his mind. Look at verse 6. The king's face grew pale. His thoughts alarmed him. His hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. Hip, hip joints went slack. One author says literally the phrase is, the knots of his loins were loosened, which might have meant that he soiled himself. And you can imagine why. <laughs> and what was the message? Look at verse 25. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Many, many, tekel, uparsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Many, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. One author says you could translate it this way in the vernacular. Your number is up. You don't measure up, and you will be divided up. <laughs> and that very night, Belshazzar was killed, Babylon fell, the kingdom was taken over. In October 12, 539 BC, the most powerful nation in the world came to an end in a night. The head of gold, the most powerful nation at the time, came to an end in a night. And then we think we'll be around forever? <laughs> assassinated the king and took it over. Why? God removes kings, he establishes kings. It's all in his control. And we don't know when our number will be up. God can bring us down in an instant. He can bring our face in the grass if he wants to. He can write your death sentence above your head in the wall. All his works are true, his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. When a nation and its leaders become characterized by drunkenness, immorality, blasphemy, idolatry, the handwriting is already on the wall. It's already on the wall. God will not be mocked. He removes and establishes kings, even the most wicked to demonstrate his power. Number two, God is the only king who is worthy of worship, even if it means our death. God is the only king worthy of worship, even if it means our death. And we find this in chapters three and six. The fiery furnace, the lion's den, two narratives that both make the same point. God is the king who's worthy of worship, even if it means death. Maybe you've heard about, you know, the worship wars that happen in a church, you know, kind of between like traditional and, you know, uh, contemporary music. You know, they call it worship wars. This, this is the real worship war right here. It's about who will you worship? Who will you worship? It's not about style. It's about substance. It's about who you're going to worship. Because you're going to give your ultimate allegiance to somebody. Somebody's going to be in the top spot. Somebody's going to be there. Is it the right one? Daniel chapter 3, if you want to flip back there, look at verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar was told that he was the head of gold, and he says, you know what, I'll do one better. I'm the whole statue of gold. I'm going to make a whole statue to represent me and my kingdom. Verse 15 he says, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hand? So who does Nebuchadnezzar think he is? He thinks he's a God. When he sets up this statue, it's for people to bow down and worship an image of himself. Look at verse 4. It says, then the herald loudly proclaimed to you, the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, all kinds of music, it's going to be a parade here. You are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall, 
Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. If, if you want to know what unrestrained human desires look like, this is it. We, we are little God factories. We, 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 we desire this. This is, this is what the heart gone wild looks like. You know, God already has the position, but we're always applying for the job. You know, is there an opening? <laughs> you know, we want that opening. We want his position. And when the state applies for the position of God, how do the children of God respond? What are you going to do? I'll, I'll tell you this much. If you wait for the music to start playing, you've already waited too late. <laughs> you need to make up who you're going to worship now. You need to have convictions now. That decision needs to be made ahead of time. You don't wait till the music starts to say, I wonder what I should do today. No, this, this just needs to be who you are. We need to have a, a fear of God that's greater than the fiery furnace, right? Convictions worth dying for, losing your jobs for, being rejected for, being persecuted for. God has to mean more to you than your life does. I'd rather die with him than to live without him. That, that's how you have to be. And the reason Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the way that they did is because they already had their minds made up. My mind's made up. No turning back, right? <laughs> Daniel 3, 16. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro replied to the king. <laughs> I, heard that, I heard a preacher give that one time. I just I figured I'd use it. <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Don't even ask twice. Decision's already made. They didn't know if they would survive the, the fiery furnace or not. They didn't know that a fourth man was going to show up in their furnace who appeared like one of the sons of the gods. They didn't know that. They didn't know that they would walk out of the furnace not even smelling like smoke. They had no idea what was going to happen. All they knew is that God is the only king who is worthy of worship. That's all they knew. God is the only king worthy of worship. And even if they died in the fire, this would have still been an incredible story of faith. This is real faith. Not like the, the word of faith kind of stuff where, you know, you believe for the, the new Rolex and the new Lexus and the new seven-bedroom house and three-car garage. Like, that's, that's not real faith. That's not real faith. Faith is even if I die, I'm unwilling to turn. I will not bow. That's faith. Faith doesn't always get us out of the fire. Sometimes your faith will get you cast into the fire. That's real faith. We could be consumed by the fire, but still be an example of faith. You know, does the, the Word of Faith movement have room in their theology for that? What about when you get cast into the fire? Same was true for Daniel in Daniel chapter 6. There was another king who didn't know his place, King Darius or Darius the Mede received the honor of being the God for the month. Remember that? Look at chapter 6 and verse 7. It says, All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the high officials, the governors, have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition 
to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document. That is the injunction. I wonder, like, like, did he even think twice about this? Hey, hey, Darius, we, you, you've just been doing such a great job here, King. We, we just came up with this idea that, you know, like when we pray, we should be praying to you. When we're asking petitions, I mean, why aren't we asking you, King? Did he even bat an eye about this before he signed it? We want you to be God for the month. You know, it's like the employee of the month. We want, we want your face in that poster. God of the month, and he became a fool in a day. Daniel didn't have to pray to a false god. He just had to refrain from praying to the true one. Just, just no prayers to anybody else but you, king. Daniel could have come up with all kinds of excuses to get away with this, right? You know, maybe, maybe I'll just wait till next month to start my quiet time. You know, maybe uh, I'll, I'll pray like when it's late at night and nobody can see me. You know, God knows my, the thoughts of my heart. You know, like, why I'll, just, I'll just pray in my head. I won't make it obvious. But that's not how he thought. He did the same thing that he always did. He flung open his windows, faced towards Jerusalem, and prayed like he always did. Why? Because he feared God more than he feared men. And he understood that the only king worthy of worship is the God of heaven. And he's worthy of my devotion, even if it means my death. His trust in God did not guarantee that he would make it out of the lion's den. But if you fear a sovereign God, your faith doesn't break down. No assurance that he'd make it out. But he was willing to worship to the death. Are are you willing to worship to the death? To the death. And again, whether Daniel made it out or not is not the main point. The main point is that his faith remained firm because he trusted in a sovereign God. Do you consider God worthy of worship to the death? I love uh, John Calvin's prayer. He says, Grant, almighty God, since thou hast reconciled us to thyself to be the precious blood of, to, by the precious blood of your son, that we may not be our own, but devoted to thee in perfect obedience and may consecrate ourselves entirely to thee. May we offer our bodies and souls and sacrifice and be rather prepared to suffer a hundred deaths than to decline from thy true and sincere worship. Lord, I'd rather die a hundred times than to turn away from devotion to you. I pray that God gives us conviction like that. Giving our lives for the one who gave his life for us is not a sacrifice too great. Number three, God reigns over rebellious nations today, but will crush the rebellious nations with the coming of Christ. God reigns over rebellious nations today, but will crush the rebellious nations that, by the coming of Christ. In both Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7, now we're, we're out at the, the end of that kind of chiasm, right? God pictures the rebellious kingdoms of the world in a vision. In Daniel chapter 2, the kingdoms are four parts of a statue. In Daniel chapter 7, there are four beasts that come out of the sea. Those kingdoms were Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And it becomes obvious that these kingdoms are in rebellion against the Most High God. So God's going to set up his own kingdom. In Daniel chapter 2, if you want to flip back there, Daniel chapter 2, look at verse 44. It says, in, those days of those, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, 
And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. God's going to set up his own kingdom. <laughs> I'm going to come and I'm going to set up a kingdom. The idea that we can somehow patchwork together this nation or any other nation to present it to the Son of God completely misses the point of Daniel chapter 2. We, we can't do this. It is God who sets up this kingdom, not us. He's going to destroy the kingdoms of the world, not patch them together. And what he puts together will not be undone. It's not like one step forward, two steps back, two steps forward, one step back. It's not going to be any of that. There's going to be a full-scale, wholesale, fail-swoop takeover. That's what God is planning. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. Look at verse 35. It says, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That, that stone is going to come, crush the statue all at once. Not a trace is going to be found and the great mountain will fill the entire earth. And that stone that is coming to fill the entire earth is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8 says, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring an end by the appearance of his coming. He's going to come. He, as he approaches, he opens his mouth, and the kingdom of Satan is disintegrated. That's what he does. He does that. It all has to be brought down, and Jesus will do the job himself. He'll come back and do this. And when we turn over to Daniel chapter 7, at the other end, the other parallel, it's clear that the coming kingdom is connected to the coming king. Look at chapter 7 and verse 13. Chapter 7 and verse 13. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. He's going to come. And Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man in his trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin over in Matthew 26, referring back to Daniel chapter 7, saying, I'm the Son of Man who comes in the clouds and receives the kingdom. That's me. In Matthew 26 and verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So, so he, he, he speaks about Daniel as a reference to himself. I'm the one who will come in the clouds of heaven. And when does the Son of Man come back on the clouds of heaven? Matthew chapter 24 says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Make the connection. The kingdom will not come until the Son of Man comes. That's I mean, if you connect it, connect Daniel 7 with Matthew 24, with Matthew 26, that the kingdom will come when the Son of Man comes, when he comes on the clouds, after the tribulation, and then he will bring in this kingdom. He will return in glory. He will slay the lawless one with the breath of his mouth. 
And of course, Jesus is reigning today, but we do not yet see the world in subjection to him. Are we right about that? (laughs) Do you see the world right now in subjection to the Son of God? No, he's coming back to subject the world to himself. It's still rebellious. Jesus is still reigning. God is still reigning. But the world right now is still in rebellion. And we can't correct that until he comes back. We're not going to see the world under subjection to Christ until Christ returns. Joseph rose to the second in command in Egypt, but Egypt was still a beast. Daniel rose to second in command in Babylon, but Babylon was still a beast. The Medo-Persian Empire, Esther, became the queen. Mordecai became the second in command, but Medo-Persia was still a beast. And even if we had a Christian evangelical president in America, guess what America still is? It's still a beast. (laughs) It's still a beast. We're not going to change this through politics. You're not going to change it that way. Christ has to come back to bring in the kingdom. It's connected to him. The kingdom is connected to the king. And it won't be some kind of patchwork structure that we can come up with to present before the king. Say, hey, look at what I've given to you. No, Christ has to do this. Christ has to do this. It would still be an idolatrous statue if we presented our own kingdom to Christ. We can't bring this kingdom from the bottom up. It has to come from the top down. And we can't change the beast into something other than a beast. That's the job for the Son of Man. And think about this. If I believe that I can do something that only the Son of God can do, then what does that make me? It makes me a usurper of God's authority. It's taking glory that only belongs to the Son. This is something that only the Son can do. we, We give glory to the Son because he's the one who does this. I can't do this. When Jesus ascended to heaven... He didn't say, okay, guys, you're in charge now. <laughs> you, you guys take care of it. You guys will do it. No, he says, you know, be my witnesses. Make disciples. He didn't say make dictators, right? Make, make disciples. But he didn't say, hey, guys, you know, you're in charge. No, no. He's the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. He didn't give that to the disciples. And if the kingdom was going to be an immediate takeover, Jesus was going in the wrong direction. He was going up instead of coming down. It's when he comes down in the clouds that he will do this takeover. Jesus will crush the kingdoms of the earth. One more passage. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. For those that are thinking that we can become kings and rule and reign, I think the Apostle Paul has something to say about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 8. Actually, I'll start at verse 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to consolate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. 
When Paul thought about himself and his ministry, he says, we're the last of all. We're the scum of the earth. But somehow there were believers that were thinking, hey, we're reigning. We've become kings. And Paul says, well, you've become kings without us. Because that's not the life that I live. I'm, I'm at the bottom of the barrel, guys. I mean, you know, say hi to me every once in a while. No, we're the last of all. We're not, we're not ruling and reigning now. That's not what we're doing. And if we were, I mean, Paul certainly missed out on it. That's not our job. Jesus will come back and do this job himself. And we do a disastrous job when we try to do Jesus' job for him. Exhibit A, the Crusades. <laughs> Exhibit B, the Inquisition. I mean, you just keep on going throughout history when Christians think that somehow we're going to do this without the king. That's, it's not our job. We do a horrible job of playing the part of the Son of Man. God removes and establishes kings, even the most wicked. God is the only king worthy of worship, even if it means our death. God reigns over rebellious nations today and will crush the rebellious nations in the coming of Christ. And four, God preserves his elect even during the times of tribulation. And this gets outside of the Aramaic section a little bit. You know, you can look at the first chapter of Daniel as an introduction to the book, but there are lessons that we learn here and parallels really to the end of the book. As the book of Daniel opens up, if you flip back to chapter 1, we find uh, Jerusalem being besieged. Look at verse 1. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Their king Jehoiakim was given into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. The vessels of Judah were taken. The last sign of surrender is the sons of Judah were also given into his hands. That's the historical background. They lost their national security, their visible authority, their religious ceremonies. Even their identities were robbed from them. But God preserved his elect even during this time of tribulation. Daniel and his friends who were taken into this deportation refused to eat the king's meat. They refused to violate their consciences and wanted to obey the law of God. They could have lost their lives for their conviction. Chapter 1 and verse 9, it says, But now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. This is, this is God's protection even during a time of tribulation. Look down to verse 15. It says, at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. God preserved them during this time of tribulation. And in verse 21 says, Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. And that's an illustration of what God can do with the nation Israel and will do with the nation of Israel in the end times as well. He will preserve them even during a time of tribulation. When they lose their national security and their authority and their religious ceremonies. Some of them will even lose their lives, but God will still preserve them even during this time. He will preserve a remnant through that future holocaust. And beginning with chapter 7, Daniel receives four visions of the future and the period of time known as the Great Tribulation. You know, he learns about that. And God protects his people even during all of that time. Flip over to chapter 7. Chapter 7, look at verse 17. We'll just go through this quickly. Chapter 7, look at verse 17. It says, These great beasts which are four in number are four kings who will arise from the earth, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. Saints are still surviving. Look at verse 21. I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in the favor of the saints of the highest one. Again, they're, they're still here. And they took 
and, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Look down in verse 25. It says, he will speak out against the Most High, this, you know, evil ruler to come. Wear down the saints of the highest one. He will intend to make alterations in times and law, and they will be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment. His dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Again, there's going to be incredible suffering, affliction, but at the same time, incredible preservation and rescue of the saints. Incredible to think about this. Daniel chapter 8. Daniel receives another vision about a ram and a goat, which represented the uh, Medo-Persian Empire, the Greece the empire of Greece, and the evil ruler known as Antiochus Epiphanes. We've learned about him. He would persecute the children of God, but somehow they still survive. Look at chapter 8. Look at verse 13. It says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? He said to me for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Again, the children of Israel are going to survive. Flip over to Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel was mourning over the sins of his people, Israel. He recognized that they had transgressed the commands of, of God. They didn't deserve God's kindness towards them. They didn't deserve to be released from their captivity. And he was clinging to the promises of God. And he receives word in Daniel chapter 9. Look at verse 24. It says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Again, the, the people are going to survive. Incredible. And finally, we have all the, the prophecies that are fulfilled and uh, spoken of in uh, chapters 10 through 12, Daniel continued to grieve over the people of Israel, even though the people of God returned to Jerusalem in fulfillment of the 70-week prophecy, uh, the 70-year 70, 70 prophecy, even though they moved back into the land of, of Israel, the sanctuary was still desolate. People were only a remnant. The temple was a pile of rocks. The city was buried underneath the rubble. The people of God are a reproach. And Daniel's still grieving over these people. He's mourning over these people. Three weeks he's crying out to the Lord for these people. And then he finally gets an answer in a vision. Daniel chapters 10 through 12 are all part of the same vision. Look at chapter 12 and verse 1. It says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. But that's not where it ends. The vision goes on to say, and at that time, your people, everyone who was found written in the book will be rescued. God is faithful to keep his word. God is faithful to keep his word. Even in a world that is shattered by tribulation and the, the coming of the Antichrist, God is still faithful to keep his promise to the Jewish nation. Why? Because he's faithful to himself. He's faithful to uphold his word. And God is going to leave himself a remnant of the Jewish people to show kindness to. My professor, Will Varner, he said that uh, every time the world seeks to wipe out the Jewish people, they just get another holiday. The affliction in Egypt gave them the holiday of Passover. The 
persecution of the people of God under Antiochus Epiphanes led to the celebration of Hanukkah. The intended destruction of the Jewish people by Haman in the Persian Empire ended with the Feast of Purim. And even the German Holocaust eventually gave way to the Jewish independence a few years later. And as we speak, there's a conflict in Israel going on now, but I can tell you by the authority of the word of God that the Jewish people will not be removed from the earth. They will not. Why? Because God is faithful to keep his word. And every attempt to annihilate the Jewish people is going to end with another holiday. And the future Holocaust by the Antichrist is going to end in the glorious kingdom of God. There will always be a remnant for God to show his kindness to. Just as when Saul's household was wiped out and David took the throne and 2 Samuel 9 and verse 3, he says, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness, the kindness of God to him? And yes, there was. There was still a remnant. There was still a son of Jonathan. Although he was crippled, there was a son of Jonathan to show kindness to. And in the same way, there's always going to be a remnant for God to show kindness to. And then Daniel's told that this people that you've been praying for, that you've been mourning over, They're going to be preserved. They're going to be rescued. And guess what, Daniel? You're going to rise again to enter into that rest with them. That allotted portion, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 13, says, but as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. And in the same way, believers, those of us who've experienced the new covenant can also say with Daniel that we too will rise to have our allotted portion at the end of the age because we benefit from this. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul prays, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We have a future inheritance and a reward and we can rest easy because God is in charge of all of it. God is the most high. He rules over the realms of mankind and he points over at the lowliest of men and one day, the most humble man who ever walked the face of this earth will receive the kingdom and will rule over it. And we long for the day when Jesus Christ returns, don't we? And we say with the Apostle John, even quickly come, Lord Jesus. Amen. What does God do? God removes and establishes kings. God receives worship, and he's the only one who's worthy of worship. God reigns over rebellious nations. But he's going to crush the rebellious nations with the coming of Christ. And God is going to preserve his elect even during the times of tribulation. And that's the one that we give our allegiance to. We give our allegiance to God. We give our allegiance to the, to the true king. I'll just end with this one illustration. There was a man by the name of Andrew Melville who was a Scottish reformer and a theologian. Uh, he succeeded John Knox as a leader of the Scottish Reformed Church. And he made a speech in front of King James VI of Scotland, who became King James I of England. And King James I of England was seeking to usurp the authority of God. Listen to how Andrew Melville responded to him. He said, Sir, we will always humbly reverence your majesty in public. But since we have this occasion to be with your majesty in private, we must discharge our duty or else be traitors both to Christ and to you. 
Therefore, sir, at diverse times I have told you, so now again I must tell you, there are two kings and two kingdoms. There's King James, the Lord of the commonwealth, and there is Jesus Christ, the king of the church, whose subject James the sixth is, and whose kingdom he is not king, nor Lord, nor ahead. We will yield to you your place and give you all the due obedience, but again I say, you are not the head of the church. You cannot give us eternal life, the eternal life that we seek for. Even in this world, you cannot deprive us of it. <laughs> Says there's two kings, and we recognize who's the king of all kings. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for this time that we've been together. We thank you for your word and even this uh, flyover of the book of Daniel. Uh, Lord, there's just so much that we've been able to receive uh, from uh, this book and uh, Father, I, I pray that you would allow these truths to sink deep within our hearts. Uh, Father, that we'd be able to carry this book, that we'd be able to put it in our tool belt, uh, be able to help uh, people uh, who have questions regarding these things. And uh, Father, that we would be uh, clear even on the end times, that we wouldn't be confused with all that's going around, all that's being said. Father, your word is, is clear and we can look to your word to find truth, to find answers. And Father, I pray that you would help us as those who are citizens of the kingdom of, of heaven our true citizenship is in heaven, Father, that, uh, that we would understand what our position is here on the earth. Uh, Father, that it's not to, to rule, it's not to be dictators, but it's to make disciples. Uh, Father, that we would uh, fulfill our role that you've given us to do while we're here and that we wouldn't uh, become distracted. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, we would serve you faithfully. And uh, Father, that we would be able to rest easy uh, knowing that you have the whole world in your hands. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.